0: All right, well, good morning, guys. Great to see everyone this morning. Uh, as you can tell, Pastor Peter is is not with us this morning, but I'm going to start by shocking you this morning. I know it's early. You ready for it? Ste- steady yourselves, okay? We're going to move forward in our study of Matthew today. We're going to make progress. No, I, I joke, if, if you've been following along, you know that when we arrived in chapter 19, the first part of it there, uh, Pastor Peter p- felt led to, to put on the brakes and, and really do a deep dive down into marriage. And so you know that that's what we've been, do- been doing these past couple of months, and it's been good. Um, if you've been following along closely, you will have noticed that he, he never actually got around to talking about divorce, and it's there in the passage. So the plan is for him to come back probably in a few weeks and finish that up. Uh, and, and be done with that. But in the meantime, we are going to move forward. And, in, uh, and actually, if the Lord wills, we're going to finish chapter 19 this morning. So if you would, go ahead and, and get to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at... Well, that's bright. Can we turn those off? Thank you. <laughs> no, no spotlight on me here. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 30. Matthew 19, I'll go ahead and warn you, we may go just a little bit long, okay, so if you're looking at your notes and you're saying there's no way he's going to make it through this, just relax, we're not going to go really long, we're going to go a little bit long, maybe, we'll see. Alright, well let me, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together again this morning, thank you for your grace, Lord your keeping preserving sustaining sovereign grace lord we we've we've come into this room each of us carrying our own burdens our our cares and concerns and and you knowing all of those have set before us Matthew chapter 19 and these two encounters with Christ that we're going to look at and so father i pray that you would set Christ before us as the all sufficient treasure and joy that He is, and Lord, I pray that You would minister to Your people in in ways that we don't even know is possible, by Your Spirit, through Your Word, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. All right, well, our passage today, it involves two encounters with Jesus, two different scenes. If you look there at your notes, you'll see two headings. The little children come, and a rich man departs. And at first glance, these two scenes may seem like they're completely disconnected, but it's worth noting that all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place these two scenes, these two encounters, back to back in the same order. So there appears to be some connection. And I, I think one of those connections is that they both communicate truth about the kingdom. If, if you remember back to chapter 18, it was all about life within the kingdom, how to do life as children in the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus has been sort of resetting the disciples' expectations about kingdom life. And, and when we get to chapter 19 here, really it's, it's more of the same with focusing in on the kingdom. Uh, and, and in particular today, gaining entrance into the kingdom. So with, with that in mind, let's look at this first encounter. Verses 13 to 15, as the little children come. Verse 13 says... Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And so we've seen that verses 1 through 12 dealt with marriage. We've covered that. And so it seems natural that the flow of the narrative would now move to children, sort of to round out family life. And, and I was really tempted in preparing for this just to camp out, camp out in these three verses and to begin to develop our broader theology of children, the, the value of children in the kingdom. But, but we don't have time to do a lot of that. And so I want us to notice just two things about how Jesus views children. And the first and most obvious is this simple and yet profound truth. Jesus loves little children. Luke's account stresses that these were infants being brought to Jesus. And and Mark's parallel account states that Jesus actually took them up in his arms. But Mark also uses this same word earlier to refer to a 12-year-old little girl. And so, by and large, I think we can assume that most of these children being brought to Jesus were infants. They were babies, toddlers, and maybe were a, a few were a bit older. And, and we're not told, but apparently they were brought to Jesus by their parents. It seems only natural that that would have been the case. In our day, we, we go stand in line with our kids for a Hansen's Snowball, and they took theirs for a blessing from the Lord Jesus. Um, but this would not have been unusual in that day. For parents to bring their children to receive a blessing or a prayer from a holy man or a rabbi. And and clearly they saw Jesus as someone who could bestow such a blessing. But notice the disciples' reaction. Look at verse 13. The disciples rebuked the people. Just just very simple. They rebuked the people. And the the word there is to censure strenuously. They actually got on to these people for bringing these kids. They, They chided them for bothering Jesus for apparently wasting his time. They, the, they were acting like handlers, sort of for a, for a VIP, filtering out the riffraff, so to speak. That, that's how they were acting, but, but what's with this attitude? Why, why are they acting like this? Well, we, we need to understand something about the cultural attitude of the time toward children. And we covered this back in, in chapter 18, but children were not held in high esteem in this day. The The Greek and Roman view of children was one of uselessness, of insignificance. They held no special status, no standing, no privilege in the world. They had nothing to offer. And, and even the Jewish people shared this attitude, seeing children more of, of, of be seen and not heard, that, that kind of attitude. So I don't think the disciples were, were just being mean here. They probably honestly thought they were doing Jesus a service. They, they viewed these people as someone Jesus should not be spending time with. But look, look how Jesus responds. Verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And, and Mark's account adds that Jesus was indignant at the disciples' actions. Do not hinder them, Jesus says. Don't, don't stop them from coming to me. I, I know they can be messy, but they're not a burden to me. I have time for these little ones. And I love this picture of Jesus. This is a, this is a tender moment of our Lord as he ministers and cares for these little ones, who the world sees as, as less than. And this really, this shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples, right? By this point, Jesus has made it clear he has a special place in his heart for the nobodies of the world. He has ministered to the outcast, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute. He has touched unclean, the lepers, uh, the demon-possessed, tax collectors, adulterers. And and just back in chapter 18, the disciples had witnessed Jesus' compassion for children, but they seemed to have forgotten. They, they seem to have forgotten this. But really, all of Scripture, and, and we, like I said, we could take time and just begin to look at passage after passage of Scripture that emphasizes the value of children. The psalmist writes in, in chapter 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And, and in our day, we are we're really good about taking our kids all over the place, right? To, to sporting events, to school events, for this and that, and it's certainly no different in, in my own family. We can serve as a, a non-stop taxi service for our kids. We really can. But the question prompted here is, do we take them to Jesus? Do we take them to Jesus in prayer? Do we, do we take them to Jesus in His Word? Do we prioritize the gathering of the saints every Sunday above all else? Or do we let sort of these, these hindrances creep into our lives? But Jesus says, do not hinder them. Have you ever considered that with all of the outreach we do here at Lakeview, with all the inviting folks to Alpha and inviting folks to Sunday worship and, and talking to our neighbors and all of that's good and biblical and to be commended, not saying anything negative about that, obviously. But have you ever considered with, with all of that, There there is a group of people, and a large group at that, who God continues to sovereignly bring into our midst without us ever having offered the first invitation. I'm talking about our kids. He just just keeps bringing them to us, here at Lakeview, at at quite a rapid rate it seems at times. (laughs) Sovereignly, putting them into our families, blessing us with them. And as a church, we, we need to make sure we have jesus 's heart for them I think it's it's easy to slip into this mindset of well, if you can't serve anywhere else, there's always the children if 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 you don't think you're quite ready to lead a table at Alpha, you can always go downstairs with the kids. How about if we reverse that? How about if we say Okay, you don't think you're, you're ready to do those things. Well, we don't think we're quite ready to trust you with our most precious little ones. And I'm only halfway joking, right? God has designed His kingdom to work in such a way that making disciples should start in-house. He has designed the spreading of His kingdom, at least in part, to rely on the perpetuation of a, of a personal, individual faith from one Father to a son, from one mother to a daughter, from, from one generation of Lakeview churchgoers to the next. That's how he designed it. And the question is, are we tracking that? Do, are, we, are we involved in that? Are we loving our children as Jesus loves them? And the second thing I want us to notice from just these three, pa- these three uh, verses is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Look at verse 14 again. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen Jesus make this same point back in chapter 18. Matter of fact, flip back to chapter 18 just for a moment, and look at verses 3 and 4. Chapter 18, verses 3 and 4 says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to reteach this, but what we said that Jesus was saying there, and what he's saying in chapter 19 is that we have to humble ourselves if we are to enter the kingdom. These children, they brought nothing to the table. They couldn't even come on their own. Their parents had to bring them. They had nothing to offer. They were needy, dependent, no standing in the world, no status or prestige, just the opposite, actually. So when Jesus said, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, the disciples' minds would have gone to, really? These ones? These, these lowly, insignificant little children? And that's exactly where Jesus would have wanted their minds to go. He's telling us again that to enter the kingdom, to do life as a part of his kingdom, we must become as these little ones. You think you're somebody? You think you can come into the kingdom based on who you are or what you do? Jesus says that's, that's not how this works. We have to get low before God. We have to humble ourselves. In the, in the military, if you know what you're looking for, service dress uniforms, the fancy ones with all the gadgets, ba- badges and ribbons and stuff, they actually tell a story. And it's, it's not uncommon for, say, a group of Marines who are together in a dress uniform setting to begin to sort of size each other up. Like, okay, he's been in 10 years. um, Oh, she's been to Iraq. I shot better than him on the pistol range, but he did better than me on the rifle range. It's, It's this sort of type A mentality of sizing each other up, comparing each other. That mentality is completely foreign to the kingdom. Completely foreign to how we enter the kingdom. We don't come into God's kingdom with our heads held high, strutting in, comparing ourselves. When God when God calls us to himself we go down before we go up. We go to the end of ourselves, our abilities. We we hit the rock bottom of of admitting that we're helpless. And that's exactly where Jesus is waiting for us. If we are to be saved, if we are to enter the kingdom, it will be with our heads held low, knowing we don't deserve to be here, knowing that we bring Nothing to the table except the messiness of our sinful lives. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so this is, this is going to now propel us into this next scene. We've seen the little children come. Now let's watch as a rich man departs. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So let's just notice some things about this man first. We often refer to him as the rich young ruler, but Matthew's account actually only tells us that he is young and that he's wealthy. And, and young here could mean anything really from, from late teens to early to almost 40, actually. Um, having great possessions, of course, meant that he was wealthy, but it also meant that he was prominent. He was a well-known figure in society. Folks would have recognized this man around town. It's Luke's account that gives us the description of him as a ruler, and it's possibly uh, meaning a ruler of a synagogue. Some commentators even actually say that he may have been a Pharisee or a Jewish elder. But either way, he was someone of status. This this young ruler was a somebody. He, he was not a nobody. But I think he gets a bad rap too often. Um, according to the accounts here, he, he seems genuine enough and eager to approach Jesus with respect and courtesy. Mark 10.17 says he ran up and knelt before him, clearly deferring to Jesus' authority. And he also refers to Jesus as teacher. And and we know that Jesus was not one to suffer hypocrites lightly, right? Again and again, we've seen Jesus cut through these insincere questions with, with even severity at times. And, and he doesn't do that here. As a matter of fact, Mark ten twenty one states, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus cared for this young man. He loved him. But what was he after? Why, why did he come running up to Jesus? Well, look at verse 16. And behold a man came up to him saying teacher what good deed must i do to have eternal life And again i think we need to be careful not to read things into his question we hear what good deed must i do and we we being very familiar with Paul's writings automatically think he's talking about works-based righteousness We we see him asking about doing something and assume he clearly doesn't understand justification by faith and and no doubt he doesn't understand that, but I don't think that's what was being asked here. I, I think he was genuinely asking something like, "How do I get to heaven? How do I how do I get right with God? What what do I do to be saved?" And I I think most of us would welcome that type of question. That's a good question. Someone were to run up and, and ask us that. And the main, the main reasons I see his questions like this is because. Number one, Jesus doesn't rebuke his question. And number two, Jesus actually gives him something to do, if you notice. But before we look at Jesus' answer, I want us to just have the backdrop of our minds here. Remember the children. Jesus had looked upon these lowly, insignificant children, no status, no position, and he had opened his arms wide, saying, Bring them to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And, and the disciples had been stunned, right? They had actually tried to stop them from coming. And now, and, and this is where we begin to see some, some contrasting elements between these two scenes. Now this rich young ruler shows up asking the right questions, eager to learn. And the disciples probably thought, alright, if, if ever there was a prime recruit, this is the one. But as soon as this young man asked his first question... Jesus throws up a roadblock. Just throws it right up in front of him. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus says, stop right there. Just stop. And and the disciples were stunned. Look at their reaction a little bit later in verse 23. Skip down a little bit. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And skip to verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? They thought this guy was a shoe in for the kingdom. And, and there are reasons for that. Under the old covenant administration, wealth and prosperity were often seen as a sign of God's blessings. There are many passages in the Old Testament showing that God's covenantal blessings came in the form of physical things, wealth and land and livestock and, and servants, etc., and, and we could get into what changed between the old and the new. But, but needless to say, by the disciples' reaction, they clearly believe this young man had already been blessed by God. They're saying, if, if, if this guy doesn't have it, who does? But Jesus is, remember, he's resetting their expectations. Status, wealth, religious activity, coming to church, reading your Bible... Attending a small group, leading a small group, teaching school the word, being an elder, none of that gets us closer to gaining access to the kingdom. None of that. And quite frankly, this is is shocking not only to the disciples, it's shocking to the world. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, always turns the world's ideas about religion on its head. Always. There's a passage that I love that, emphasizes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go ahead and flip over there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a, there's a section of it in your notes, but I want us to look at the, the whole thing. Verses 26 to 29. This is Paul describing how God builds his kingdom. And I want us to notice how it is at complete odds with worldly status and privilege. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has his own standard operating procedures for building his kingdom. And it is at complete odds with the world. It it puts to shame those who are wise in the world. Those who are strong according to the world. But why does he do it like that? Why, why Why is this his way of business? Well, it's so that no one can boast in the presence of God. And I needed to be reminded of this, and you may need to be reminded of this as well. We, we can easily slip into this, this form of our own judgment about who is and who isn't kingdom material. At times, I can almost so easily write someone off as being too far gone, too likely to be unreceptive for me to open my mouth and share the gospel. Or maybe it's on the other extreme. Maybe maybe I sort of give someone a free pass because they're just a good, decent person, right? But good, decent people don't enter the kingdom. Blood-bought sinners enter the kingdom. But this young man, he came asking about eternal life and being right with God. And so Jesus stops him, not to rebuke him, but to, to get him to think about what he's asking and who he's asking it to. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus says. There is only one who is good. Jesus is asking him to consider the standard of good. Where, where does such a thing even come from? Only God. Only God's law. And, and you're asking me this, Jesus says, which, which by the way is, is the right place to be asking the question. But have you made the connection between goodness... And me? Do do you approach me as someone who can merely point you to an authority on good? Or do you recognize that I am the authority on good? Because it is my very nature. Jesus is trying to get him to think. And then he answers the man's question, already knowing where this conversation needs to go. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. You want to talk about being good, being moral? Okay. We'll go that route. Keep the commandments. Which ones? He seems to eagerly respond with. He wants to know out of the 613 commandments in the Pentateuch, which ones does Jesus give priority to? And Jesus' response is very telling. He, he goes to the Big Ten, right? He says... Don't murder, number six. Don't commit adultery, number seven. Don't steal, number eight. Don't bear false witness, number nine. Honor your father and mother, number five. And then he gives this summary statement, for all of those together, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives him what's known as the second table of the Decalogue. It deals with how we treat each other on the horizontal level of relationships. But he skips the first table. He skips numbers 1 through 4 and he also skips number 10. Which is what, by the way? Do not covet, right? Those deal with how we treat and view God. Starting with with number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus, he knows what he's doing here and it's, it's brilliant. Jesus knew that taking along these ones that he's listed would have been a pretty... Uh, standard Jewish understanding of what it meant to be a good moral person. And so the young man isn't too surprised. I think he was sincerely answering the question when he says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? But I think we can assume that he probably was not familiar with Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He was thinking in a very legalistic, strict letter of the law, I have kept all of the law. He has not assessed the motivations and intentions of his heart because if he had, he would not have been able to say, I have kept all of the law. But remember, Jesus is loving this young man. He, he is drawing him ever closer to the precipice of the narrow gate. He has started wide, knowing how he would respond, and he's, he's funneling him toward his own heart's condition. And so for a moment, Jesus lets this answer go unrefuted. And I think we need to give this young man some credit here. In his mind, he had kept the law. He had gained prominence. He was wealthy. He had status and privilege. And yet he knew. He knew he was still lacking something. He knew he wasn't right with God. What do I still lack, he asks. If you've been through Alpha, you know the the quote from Jim Carrey, the actor that Pastor Keith uses in week one. At some point, Carrey said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that's not the answer. And this young man knew. He knew that this wasn't the answer. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Jesus has ushered him to the edge of eternity. Showing him the very secret to life. Jesus actually answers his question. He he gives him the answer he was seeking. And this young man, he, he turns and he goes away sorrowful. The word there is is grieved. He was grieving. He was so close. He was looking into the eyes of the very one he was seeking. And yet he was unable to break the snare that held him. He asked for some good thing. But Jesus pointed to a goodness that was beyond his ability. And, and we should just stop and, and ask the question, well, what made this young man, full of life, walk away from the Lord Jesus Himself? And, and the answer is, it's pretty clear. Look at the end of verse 22. For he had great possessions. He was so consumed by, he was so enamored with, he had such a reliance and trust in his money and wealth He was unable to part with it. That's pretty straightforward. But let me interject here what Jesus is not teaching. This is not a command for every Christian to go sell all that they own and give to the poor. Could Jesus tell you to do that? Absolutely he could. But that's not what he's saying here. Any um, study of other interactions with wealthy people in Scripture will show us that that's not the blanket statement here. Nor is Jesus teaching that had this young man gone and sold everything and gave to the poor, that he would have earned eternal life. That's that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that unless you're able to sever the ties of your idolatry, unless you're willing to walk away from this all-consuming part of your life, you will never find what you're looking for. Only a faith in Jesus alone, not... Not Jesus plus money, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend on my money for, for part of the time, and when that runs low, I'm going to switch over to my reserve tank of Jesus. That's, that's not how this works. Only a faith which transforms your life in such a way that you now view your wealth, and oh by the way, everything else as secondary, as less than ultimate. Only that faith will gain you access to the kingdom. But notice that the commands to sell and to give are followed by come and follow. The point of Jesus' demand is not, it is not wealth divestment, but wholehearted discipleship. Jesus will not come merely as an add-on to an otherwise successful life. So so many people believe having Jesus just means having a well-rounded life. Like, I had this little piece that was missing, but now i got Jesus right there, and now I can feel good and complete about myself. That's, that's, that's not how it works. When, when Jesus comes, if He comes, it's to explode our lives, to remake us completely, not, not to do touch-up jobs. I've heard it said that Jesus is either Lord overall. all, or he's not your Lord at all. And this passage is calling us to look at our lives and, and scour the corners of anything we might be holding back, anything we might be unwilling to give up, anything in our lives that we may be serving as an idol. This, this young man's wealth was clearly, uh, his wealth and his possessions was clearly his idol, but, but we can have our own versions. Tim Keller writes this, this is uh, there in your notes, He asked the question, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It can be family and children, or career, and making money, or achievement, and critical acclaim, Or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Are there areas in our lives where we have put up off limits signs to God? Are your dreams and ambitions in life, are they available to God for, for him to step in at any moment and say, you're done with that. I have something else for you. And what about money, like, like this young man? Is, it, is money an idol for you? Here's a, an easy but perhaps uncomfortable way of judging ourselves with regard to money. What does your giving look like? What does our giving to the spreading and advancement of God's kingdom look like? Are we tithing regularly? If not, I just ask you to be honest with yourself. Why why is that part of your life, why are you unwilling to give that part of your life over to the complete control of Jesus? Are you not trusting Him in that area? I can't answer that. I don't know. But we need to see that Jesus wasn't calling for a sort of grim-faced stoicism here. He he wasn't merely telling us to abandon everything for nothing. This is transactional language. Look at verse 21. Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is, is loving this young man in this moment. Remember that. He's loving him as he makes this all-encompassing demand of his life. He's loving him as he looks him in the eye and says, get rid of it all. Get rid of it all and follow me. Jesus was setting before him the riches of heaven, the, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus himself. Eternal riches of glory was the offer. That's the offer Jesus makes us as well. But this young man's desires, they, they just weren't big enough. His passions, his affections, his desires, they were too small, too weak. He settled for the lesser. And, and no doubt he thought he was gaining the greater. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I love this quote from The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this safe, comfortable young man missed it. He was too easily pleased and he went away sorrowful. Paul David Tripp says, only when all of God rules your heart will you be able to keep the pleasures of the material world in their proper place. So we've we've seen the little children coming with nothing, their hands were empty, and Jesus welcomed them. And then we see this rich young ruler who came with, with the pride of possessions. His fists were clenched around his possessions around his belongings, and Jesus, with his demand of total surrender, turned him away. So let's lastly look at the reasons Jesus gives for why this happened, and the rewards he points us to. First, how does Jesus explain to his disciples what just happened? Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, "'Truly I say to you, only with difficulty.'" Will a rich person enter the kingdom? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, if, if we don't read closely here, verse 23 and verse 24, they're going to seem like they contradict each other. 23 states it is difficult for the rich to enter heaven. 24 states it is impossible for the rich to enter, enter heaven by using this rather absurd idea of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. So, so which is it? Well, one solution that has has been popular, but let me say, utterly refuted, is to make, uh, make verse 24 refer to this supposed small gate, a low gate in the wall of Jerusalem that camels had to bow down and sort of kneel down and crawl through. That, that actually has been refuted um, pretty resoundingly. That would, of course, make verse 24 sound like it was merely repeating 23, that it's just difficult but not impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's, it's an interesting sermon story, but I think that's about it. The, there is zero evidence that such a low gate like that ever existed. Almost all commentaries, scholars for today say that that never existed. And furthermore, it actually distorts what Jesus is saying. So the question is, which is it? Is it, is it difficult or is it impossible? The answer is Yes. In one sense, the verse 23 cents, Jesus is illustrating what the disciples had just witnessed. Namely this, when, when you have everything you need from money, it is difficult to admit you need God. When you get meaning and fulfillment from your possessions and prominence, it is difficult to humble yourself and get low before God. And Scripture teaches this throughout In Luke 8, verse 14, Jesus described it this way when he's explaining the parables of the soils. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10 like this, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now we could, we could read passages like this and do what we're good at doing, or at least good at what I'm doing deflect. This, this is talking about rich people. Those millionaires and billionaires out there who cling to their wealth. Well, by almost any economic standards in the world, everyone in this room this morning would qualify as being rich. The vast majority of people on this planet live at a level far, far, far below what we are accustomed to as Americans. So we need, to, we need to hear verse 23 because verse 23 is peeking his head in room 200 this morning. It's talking to us. Jesus never hesitates to point out the dangers of money. And here Jesus is saying the snare of money is dangerous. Let's not make this complicated. He's saying it's dangerous. If your comfort and safety comes from your bank account... The reality is you will have no need of a sovereign Lord. It is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the other sense, the verse 24 sense, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Because of the same reason it's impossible for a poor person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or a middle class person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Namely, God looks upon sinful man and yet demands utter perfection. And that is utterly impossible for us. Look at verse 26. This, this glorious, amazing verse 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And this verse gets yanked out of context all the time. But what Jesus is pointing to in this reality is if, if left to ourselves to save ourselves, we, we won't make it. We, we have no hope of doing that. If, if we're left to try and escape the snare of the devil on our own, if left to try and, and conjure up a, a love for God and obedience to His commands, we, we face an impossible task. Why is that? Why is it impossible? Because we are slaves to sin. Dead in our trespasses, Paul says. And dead folks don't just decide to be alive. They just lay there. Being dead. In their deadness. It is by God's sheer and sovereign grace that any of us can turn away from money, our prominence, our status, or any other idol we may have and walk into the waiting arms of Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9 says. So is it difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom? Absolutely. Is it impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom? Absolutely. And so finally, these, these last three verses, Jesus is going to assure us of our rewards. Verse 27 then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and, and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I just love Peter. Here, here's Jesus laying out these sobering, glorious realities and Peter sort of clears his throat and says, um, we, we've left everything, which by the, by the way, they haven't. They haven't. We've left everything and followed you. What, what do we get? And I love the fact that Jesus humors this question. And he answers him. And we could dig down into what Jesus is referring to with these thrones. We could go to uh, Daniel 7 and Revelation 21 and other places. But suffice it to say, Jesus is talking about the roles the disciples will play in the administration of his new kingdom. In the new heavens. that's, That's what the new world means there. It's the regeneration. The new kingdom. The new world. The new heavens. And it's clear they will hold some position of special status. And so Jesus gives this promise of reward specifically to the disciples. And then he turns and opens the coffers of his treasury to everyone else, to us. But I, I think we can be squeamish at times when it comes to thinking about our heavenly rewards, right? We, we like to run up to the edge and, and get a glimpse of it, but we don't, we don't want to stare too long at it because we think we need to do our duty for duty's sake. Not to, not to get something out of it. But that's, that's just unbiblical. God has taken the time to point us to His rewards again and again in Scripture. To urge our obedience, all the while promising a reward. Holding them up in front of us. So the proper response is not to to close your eyes and say, no, I'm too holy, don't show me the rewards. No, it's to embrace these promises, these rewards, and give thanks for what God has purchased for us through Christ. The truth is that for anyone who has denied himself for Christ, for anyone who has sacrificed for the kingdom, there is a crown waiting And do you happen to know the going rate of exchange for a crown of glory in God's kingdom? It's one cross on Golgotha. And there's all the money in the world would never buy it because it's already been bought and paid for. Jesus is telling us there is a rich, glorious reward coming. And and the centerpiece of that reward, guys, is, is Jesus himself. He's our treasure. He's our inheritance. If, if that doesn't get you spooled up and thinking about it, we, we need to check ourselves. Jesus is the infinite joy. And we're going to get to spend eternity with Him. It's staggering. When all is said and done, there will be no loss. No loss in having followed Christ. Only gain. Only gain. And so verse 30 ends with this summary statement of what Jesus has been pointing to and, and also what He's going to point to in the, the upcoming parable in chapter 20. The rich young ruler seemed like he would have been first. These lowly, insignificant children seemed like they would be last. But in the kingdom of God, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And all of that from beginning to end is by His grace. Alright, so next week we will start chapter 20. Thank you guys.